0: All right, Romans chapter 6. We've been working verse by verse through Romans, and here we are, verse 10. The death he died, this is Jesus, the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. So that you may obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under law, but under grace what then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace by no means? Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or with obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I'm using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to every increasing wickedness, so now offer yourself as slaves to righteousness leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at, at the time from those from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reaps to holiness and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. We're not going to cover all those verses this morning, but um, we would do well and we did well by reading them. So let's, let's pray together. Father. Again, we um, ask for your help. And thank you that in our asking, there is no shaming from you. To truly say we are weak is alone where we find your strength. You, you made us to be dependent on you in everything. And one of the clearest expressions of our dependence on you is prayer in your son's name. So please then, These verses are big and we need your help at every point to be able to see how much greater and and grander and more wonderful Christ is, more than we ever thought, and to see that all, all our problems stem from failing to see Him as He is. For it is a strange thing to sin against you as Christians who are united to Christ. And yet it is a marvelous thing that you have determined not only to let your grace abound over our sin, but to also give us Jesus Christ and his very own strength against it. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of you, the living God. Amen. Now, we have been saying that Paul, under God, in order to defend the doctrine of justification by faith alone in Christ alone from those who say that Paul's gospel is is too soft and there isn't enough morality in his gospel or or there is not even enough motivation for holy living in his gospel if grace is always abounding over sin. Paul has been explaining the dramatic and life-altering change which took place in every Christian right out of the gate in their conversion. That every Christian in justification is promised sanctification. Not by learning, you know, some tips and tricks or giving up some things or adding on other things. No, he explains as an apostle the certainty of the Christian sanctification because of our union with Christ. And that not only changes us, but it changes what we want. And so to suggest... That justification by faith either promotes or even delays um, sanctification. That is a monstrous accusation by a person or by people who do not understand the glory of the gospel. Because the Christian, if your Bible is open, you'll see this. At every point of our life, we are in harmony. We are in unison with the Son of God. Verse Verse 3, we have been immersed, baptized into Christ, died, verse 3, with Christ, buried, verse 4, with Christ, raised, verse 5, united to Jesus Christ. Paul says that at least eight times in seven verses. You are united to Jesus Christ. So the resurrection power, all of it, with Christ and our union with God God the Son is there. And yet Paul is honest enough to say as we move along here, that he and we will still sin. Now, personally, I appreciate that level of honesty and reality. And it's one of the reasons why I'm a Christian. And again, Paul's concern here is not just to teach us how not to sin or simply to reduce our sinning. It's far grander than that because he's making the case why we no longer have to sin as he defends the gospel of imputed righteousness and shows us just how gracious of a God we have and need and to show us how at the cross of Jesus Christ, that not only took care of everything, but it takes care of everything. That that one act of righteousness, performed by Jesus Christ alone, by his suffering death on the cross, imputes, credits, empowers, and promises not only forgiveness and superabundant grace, but holiness to all who come to Jesus in childlike faith. So after Paul saying what he said, the best question is not, how can I sin a bit less? I mean, that's not a horrible question. But the best question is, why in the world would any Christian ever sin at all? You see, as you look at these verses, what didn't Jesus Christ do enough in our justification? What part of our union in Christ is there some deficit, some flaw, some weakness, something that Jesus did not do enough of for us in our sanctification? So last week I was taking a walk with my wife. We were holding hands. We were united. And on the other side of the street, I saw something which I wanted to get a better look at. So I started walking that way. And because we were holding hands, because we were united, She started walking that way too, until she didn't. And she pulled back and she said, don't. As in, don't go over there. So two thoughts came to my head. One was, if I want to go across the street, (laughs) I can go across the street. I kept that thought to myself until now. The, The second thought was, hey, This is just like our union with Jesus Christ. He's got our hand, and at just the right time, for just the right reason, he pulls back and says, don't. And sometimes we don't. But sometimes we say, no. And we go, and we do. We shouldn't, but we do. Therefore, as the simple little song says, that I sang to myself all week, our only hope is in you, Jesus, our only hope is in you. From early in the morning to late at night, our only hope is in you. Loved ones, we dare not separate the work of Christ from the very person of Christ in our union with Him. You see, historically and, and currently, people to, to suggest what is true are either, are either like propositions put forward or some slogan or a sentence or some belief or some ethic or some fact. All of that is impersonal intangible none of them can hold you like christ holds you but the bearer of truth the bible says is a person the person who bore our sin in his body on the cross the person who bore our shame the person who sets our paces for our entire life because truth is a person we are not united to mere words we are united to a person jesus christ he said i am truth in other words I am the embodiment of truth. And everyone on the side of truth, they listen to me. That's who we are united with. And yet, even in that marvelous transformation of conversion, of our union with Jesus Christ, grace is there because grace is still needed. And grace is abounding over our sin. And God set it up that way. He is pleased to give us grace, which is what Paul is saying. Because the gospel awakens God's pity on us and not his wrath. And loved ones, that is how sanctification is to be understood. That, that is how it's to be taught. That's how it is to be preached from the scriptures. Parents, that's how you understand and train your children yet unconverted because you see, in a very real sense, sanctification keeps telling about G- us about Jesus and His love for us on the cross achieved not by keeping rules, because rule keeping is not enough, and on its own, rule keeping is wicked. It is a fundamental denial of our need of a Savior. Because now our entire incentive for godly living, if you would, is turned on its head. We were once under law as a system of salvation, and when we were using law-keeping to try and save ourselves, our motive for obedience was either fear, or please, God, don't get me, or self-confidence, hey God, and everyone else, look at me, or promotion, hey God, look how much I am doing, it's time for some paybacks from you, for me. Which is so much of how popular Christianity works. So you give 10, you know, $10, 10 minutes, 10 give-ups, 10 sacrifices, and God will be obliged, be, be willing to give you, you know, 100 things back. It's not the gospel. So Paul builds his case further by making it known that Jesus not only died for us to pay the penalty of our sin, but he also died, verses 10 and 11, you can see it there, so that we would not sin. The death he died, Christ, verse 10, he died for sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, as addressing you and I, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. That our old nature was crucified, the Christian is now able to live. And the word there in verse 11 for live is, is the Greek word zoe, the kind of life Christ would live if he was in our post and in our position, alive to God. And therefore, in verse 12, he uses that word, therefore, which tells us of our union with Jesus Christ as he has been carefully explaining in the previous verses, and now he's going to take our union with Christ to its logical and glorious conclusion. This is its conclusion, and it's our first point. Do not, verse 12, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you can obey its evil desires. If you have the King James, it says lust. It's a bit nastier of a word. So you see, if we as Christians are out of control morally, it is not because of the gospel. It's not because of justification. It's not because of God's grace that somehow too much grace is a bad thing. Don't be foolish. And it's not because our transformation and our conversion somehow didn't take. If sin is abounding, it's because we are letting something which is dead to us dominate us. I mean, that's crazy, isn't it? Who in their right mind would let a corpse tell us what to do? Which is what happens when we sin. Please think with me. Let's just backtrack just a little bit. Paul has made it painfully clear of how serious our condition is and our fallenness when we come into this world. We come into this world born into sin, natural born sinners, every one of us. By nature being in that state of original sin Adam's sin is our sin and Paul traditionally uses two metaphors to describe original sin the first metaphor is death all right so by nature we are dead spiritually in our sins we are born alive biologically but arrive into this world dead spiritually dead in sin no vitality towards God and dead is a very strong word. But it's the chosen word that God himself used to explain our fallen human condition. Dead. But the other metaphor Paul uses, the one that he's developing here, is the metaphor of slavery, or in bondage to sin. Again, that's what we are by nature when we come into this world. So we are born in this world as slaves to sin, in bondage to sin. Which means quite a few things. But the one thing this means is, is that the, when the unconverted person sins, it is very understandable. They are dead in sin. They are a slave to sin. Our children, when they are not converted or who have not yet been converted, when they sin, it is very understandable. Dead in sin. So, no incredible parental technique can, can like, discipline that out of them. So, for the unconverted, sinning is understandable. However, for the converted, for the regenerated, for the born again, sinning is terrible. Verse 2, if you see it there in your Bible. We are dead to sin. So, everyone has the capacity to make decisions according to their desire. However, only the Christian has desires now which are in union with Christ. Christ has changed our wants. Why? Well, again, your Bible, verse 7, because of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross and his death and resurrection, we have been free, verse 7, have been set free because of Jesus from sin and specifically here, sin's power. Therefore, loved ones, since we are set free by God's grace, In Christ, one, we are not the heroes of our holiness, not at its root. I was reading an Instagram post for somebody and they were telling me about their holiness and they said, I did this and I did that and I did and I did. And I was like, don't, because that's all about you. You haven't told me one thing from Romans 6 at all. So since we Christians, and this is the second thing, since we are set free by God's grace in Christ, because we were dead to God, we needed to be born again to get that holiness train rolling, grace was needed to save us, and God did that. So again, prior to our birth, dead, slaves to every impulse, to every lust, slave to ourselves, slaves to every itch that we had. But now we've been made alive. In Christ, sanctification is a gift. Paul says in verse 12, Therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal body. Literally, it means in your mortality, in your humanity, in your day-to-day existence. So Paul's writing to the church. People who have been alive, made alive by the power of the Holy Spirit. Precious people tied to, united to, raised from being spiritually dead and now made alive and set free from their bondage and slavery to sin. This, if you would, was their permanent and perpetual condition because of Jesus. So if you're here and you're a Christian, that is your permanent and perpetual condition as a Christian. Now, let's just stop for a second and kind of swim in that, okay? I mean, isn't this incredible? Isn't this glorious? Doesn't this make you happy? And hopeful about your right now? And about your future? I mean, doesn't this make you want to worship God a bit more? Don't you just, if you were me, don't you want to just skip? Around the block? Say some really nice things about Jesus? This is beautiful. God left nothing Undone in Christ and our sanctification. So, this is the mega trifecta. Do you you know what the mega trifecta is? This is my mega trifecta. This is what God did. So, when I was a kid, the mega trifecta usually took place at Christmas time. One, we got to open our presents on Christmas Eve night. Two, We had an awesome spread of Christmas Eve food, Italian style, and we couldn't get enough of it, and the table was open 24 hours, all night. Three, we were together as a family. Four, we stayed up and we played with our toys pretty much as late as we wanted to, and boy did we play. Five, when we would sleep in on Christmas morning, we got to do the same thing all over again, but this time it was Christmas dinner that was waiting for us. And six, mega trifecta, we could do the same thing almost all of our Christmas break. It's like, hey, hey, hey. So I know now what I didn't know then, that I didn't deserve any of that. It was all a gracious gift of God, from God. He put me in that place through my parents, but God started it. He made it happen. And it was glorious. It's the same thing here When it comes to our sanctification, he started it. He makes it happen. We've been raised for being spiritually dead and now made alive, set free from our bondage and slavery to sin with the same power and the same love which raised Jesus Christ from the dead. All of that was given in its entirety. Now listen carefully. All of that was given in its entirety, in fullness, nothing held back from God, The first day that we said, I do to Jesus Christ as Christians. Okay, therefore, now think with me, okay? All the different ways we hear how to be holy. This is what this means. You didn't have to fast for this to happen, Christian. You didn't have to pray for his fullness or press into it. You didn't have to work for it. You didn't have to make promises to God to get it. You didn't have to go on some special diet or observe special days like they were trying to do in Colossians. And then if you did that good enough, then God would give you all these united uh, beauties being united with Jesus Christ. We didn't have to ease into it. and And it was so kind of like God parceled it out. So the more God saw us trying, he would say, well, look at them. They're trying so much harder. I'm going to give them a little bit more of my union with Jesus. I'm going to give them a little bit more holiness. And then if we took a few steps back, God would say, Well, I'm, I'm gonna take it away because working for God's favor actually forfeits God's favor. But what else do we hear in our day about calls for holiness? Oh, I haven't surrendered everything to Jesus. Like that didn't happen at your conversion. We didn't need to exercise religious rituals to receive this gift. We're not baptized for this. We don't have to receive communion to get this. We don't have to name, name it and claim it. We didn't have to even say in our sanctification like we would do starting a diet. Okay. Today is the day that I start. This is the day. This is the day. None of it. The ground of our sanctification is promised the ground of power for sanctification was a gracious gift of God in Christ, in the gospel, full stop. In other words, period. Nothing needs to be added to it. A gracious gift of grace from our good and loving Father because of the perfect obedience of His Son. Therefore, verse 12, Paul says, do not let sin reign in your mortality, in your daily existence. And when we sin now, And we still do, because I've been saying week after week, a lifelong battle with indwelling sin is to be expected. There's a warfare there. Paul will get to that in Romans 7 and other places in the Bible. But here's the difference. Though we still sin as a Christian, we don't have to. We don't have to. We don't sin now because we are slaves to sin now when we sin as Christians, it's because we want to. It's because we have chosen to. Now if you've been following me, then loved ones, please tell me why you see that Romans 5:20, do you see it there? is so strikingly necessary. when sin abounds, grace much more abounds. And please tell me why Romans 8:1, there is no condemnation for those in Christ? Please tell me why you see that Paul put those as the bookends for chapter 6 and 7. It's beautiful because you see, a Christian sinning is like this. It's like our parents are leaving town for the weekend. They can give us lots of money for meals while they're away. They give us cell numbers for emergencies. They have their friends drive by the house just to check on us. They walk us through numerous what-to-do-if-this-happens scenarios. They pray with us before they leave. Then they pull out of the driveway. They go down the street about 25 feet. They pull back into the driveway, get out of the car, walk over to us, give us a hug, give us a kiss, and they say, hey, I just want to tell you again before we leave. I love you. And then they shove a few more dollars in your pocket. I want you to have a really nice weekend. I love you so much. You are so special to me. But they leave. 48 hours later, they come back. We've blown it. The house is burned to the ground. You're starving. You you didn't eat a thing, even though you had all that money. No one called 911. No one called any emergency list number. What happened? What happened? Nothing good. Do not let sin reign in the ins and outs of your life, in your mortal body, in the true blue you. Not just the theater you, the outside you. That's way too easy. But the, the inside you, the all-seeing eye of God sees that inside you. And when temptations come, we, we are every time presented with a way out. And he promises the power of the Holy Spirit. God is working, and you and I are to work. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for God is at work in you. According to his good pleasure, God is working, and so should we. God is working, but God is also forgiving, because he's a gracious God, and we need that forgiveness. We need Romans 5.20 and Romans 8.1 to be true. And so before we get to the second point, verses 12 and verse 13 are written in what is called the present middle imperative. And that's really important. And this is what it means. And it's almost a re-explanation. At the exact moment of our conversion, something happened to us. Namely, you were set free immediately from sin's power. You were united to the all-powerful Jesus Christ. Therefore, Paul says, it's imperative that you live in harmony with God who has made this incredible change in you. Now again, we still sin. We bring some awful large baggage into the Christian life. At least I did. Patterns of behavior which I still wrestle with, which are wrong. Lines of living, lines of thinking, which are terribly and deeply flawed. And they do not disappear overnight. But what has disappeared? What has disappeared is our bondage to those things. And again, so we still do terrible things. They don't disappear overnight. But what has disappeared is that we are not a slave to them anymore. We are not in bondage to them anymore. Therefore, now we have the privilege to cooperate with our union with Jesus Christ, to cooperate with his grace, feeding the the, the new man, if you would, and starving the old. That's verse 12. And again, why would we let something which is dead to us Rule us. Verse 13, do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness. So Paul changes it a bit. So here when he says, um, uh, do not offer any part of yourself, he's not refilling, just referring just to the, you know, the fleshly stuff, the easy ones, you know, the, the sex stuff and the, and the alcohol stuff and, you know, that kind of thing. It refers to every aspect of your human life. Do not let your mind Be an instrument of sin. Do not let your lips. That's the idea. Every part of you be an instrument of sin. Don't let your legs be an instrument of sin. Do not run to evil. Do not let your intellectual capacity. By thinking you know everything. So you won't learn anymore. Be an instrument of sin. Do not but, second point, finally, do. You see it there, verse 13b. Do offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of your body. The Greek word is, is um, your entire self. Members would be the old English word. Every bit and piece of you in your body, all of it as an instrument of righteousness. Your eyes, your ears, your mouth, your mouth. <laughs> Your mind. Your mind. Your feet. Your feet. you got two of them. All of them are to be offered to God. Paul will say in Romans 12, I entreat you by the mercies of God to offer your body, same word there, as a living sacrifice. This is reasonable as a Christian. Now, when he uses that word instruments, and you think about instruments, instruments means that you take an instrument And the instrument is the means by which you're able to do a certain kind of work. So, for example, the programmer, the computer programmer, has her computer. The the builder has his hammer. The the painter has their brush. The computer, the, the hammer, the paintbrush, they're all tools, used, instruments to bring about the desired effect. Now, you can use those tools for good or you can use those tools for evil. A programmer can make this incredible website, but they can also hack somebody's computer, and they can do very dark deeds on the dark web. A painter can paint this beautiful picture, or they can vandalize and paint graffiti. The builder can take his hammer and make a beautiful home, or he can take his hammer and destroy the thing. So it is with the Christian. We can use our minds to sin, or we can use our minds for righteousness. We can use our speech to slander, or we can use our street speech to praise. We can use our minds and our bodies to divide, or we can use them to unite. We can use our legs to walk in sin, or we can use our legs, li- 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 excuse me, to walk away from sin. And so Paul says, the whole person, every member of your body, our mortal day to day bodies, has been raised from spiritual death, and now is called to a new kind of slavery. Because now the Christian is finally free, not to do whatever they want, but to do what they finally could not do, or what they could not do before. And that is obey and live for Jesus Christ. So he continues the metaphor as slaves to righteousness, servants of Christ now. That is the difference between the old life and the new life. Okay. So, number one, do not, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. There's no need to. Do offer your body as, as an instrument of righteousness. Done. Verse 14. So, this is written in the indicative. It means this is, this is the sure thing. Sin shall no longer be your master. It's a command. It won't be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. Okay. Earlier, it was the imperative. Now it's in the indicative. This is a promise. Again, this is true of every Christian. On one level, it's a bit harder than most of the holiness teaching, but on one level, it's most glorious. This is going to happen. It's going to happen. It's happened. This is not up to you. This is not up to me to be true. Sin, dominion is gone. It is done. You cannot be brought back into your bondage of sin like you were before. Sin is not your master. Sin cannot drag you back to that way of life when you were hopeless and dead to God and dead uh, to the things of righteousness. Why? Sin is not your master. Verse 14b, you are not under law, but under grace. There's no exceptions here. Every Christian, this is for. Okay, so what does he mean, not under law? All right, well, this is what it means at the very least. First, the Christian is not under law as a way of justification. Right? Paul makes that clear in Romans 3.20. No one will be declared righteous by God in God's sight by keeping the law. Galatians 3.11. Clearly, no one will be justified before God by observing the law. And the way that you know, Christian, that you are keen on this truth is that when Satan tempts you to despair and he reminds you of the guilt within, do you respond by pointing to your obedience or to the obedience of Jesus Christ? Tell me which one is better. The obedience of Jesus Christ. The law has no authority to accuse the child of God and it brings to us no fear of God's judgment as the Christian have been, has been saved by sin's guilt and sin's penalty not by our obedience to the law but by the precious blood of Jesus first then the christian is not under the law as a way of justification second the christian is not under the law as the dynamic or the energy of our sanctification okay so in romans 5:20 20 and 21 we're told the law increases trespasses and that means that our union with christ that is the dynamic energy, the power, which enables us to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. The law can't do that. If the law, if rule-keeping could do that, then Paul said somewhere else, Christ died for nothing. You can find that in Galatians 2. Okay, so the law, so let's just think about this. Being under the law We're not under the law as the way of justification. We're not under the law as the energy for our sanctification. And we're not under the law in the idea of the Mosaic legislation. This is what I mean. Every once in a while, you'll hear people say, well, I'm a very serious Christian. And one of the ways that you know I'm a very serious Christian is I try to do as many of the Old Testament things as possible. All the communal stuff, all the holy days, all the little things, ins and outs, I try to do them all. And Paul's like, Jesus Christ, put those things away. If you're trying to do those things to achieve something, stop, stop. However, he's not saying here in verse 14 that the law of God is not to be a way of life for the believer. I mean, when you look at the law of God, it is the revealed will of God. God does not want us to steal. Commandment number eight, God does not want us to lie. Commandment number nine, God does not want us to covet, to long for the material things of others, and or to long for the marital relationships and lives of others. That's commandment number 10. So when Paul writes, verse 14, sin shall not be your master because you're not under law but under grace, he is saying we are no longer underneath the law in the sense of being underneath the awesome, weighty burden of it and the condemnation of it. All right, so some of you know this, 613 precepts given to Moses. When you think about that, how could they not cry out to God and say, we can't do this. Can you send Jesus right now? There's no way we're going to do this. They didn't do it. Beyond that, but by the time Jesus Christ walks the earth, the Pharisees had heaped upon heapings of these man-made traditions on top of the commands. So they extend these 613 uh, precepts. So you had the Mishnah and you had the Gemara, which commentated on the law and all it did was add more bits and pieces and steps to the law. So Paul says you are not under that weight any longer. Not as a system of salvation. And we're not under any condemnation from the law anymore. And you're not any under your, your own conscience because sometimes our conscience has its own rules and sometimes it condemns and we say no. So from the beginning of our existence we have been under the dreadful burden. And the justifiable condemnation of the law because the law shows us our disobedience so clearly and there's a debt that we can't pay. But Paul says, you're not under that burden anymore. The guilt of judgment, you're not under as a Christian. Now you are under grace, right? The righteous live by faith, period. Faith in Christ. For it is by grace Ephesians 2, you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourself. It is the gift of God. And Paul will keep telling this. I mean, the rest of this chapter is so OCD. He tells us the same thing over and over again in different ways. And so after saying all that, essentially, we go, why, do you, why would you go back to Egypt? Why would you let the old man rule over you? I mean, I, I won that fight already. You are in union with Jesus Christ. Have you been justified by faith alone? Are you going to try to justify yourself by your works, which is, which is a sin? To justify ourselves by our works is the sin of self-righteousness. We're under grace. And because we're under grace, we move from grace to grace. Because grace does not just end out our justification. But grace is continuous and ever-present. Indeed, grace keeps showing up in the progress and in the ongoing work of our sanctification, which means this, and please listen carefully, we are just as much sanctified by grace as we were justified by grace. Say it again, we are just as much sanctified by grace as we were justified by grace. And this is marvelous of God to do this. I mean, if, if God tore his son to shreds for us so that we could be forgiven, what else will God not do for his people? And in terms of sanctification, I mean, here's the thing. You have nowhere to go but up. I mean, yeah, there's going to be some dreadful moments when we refuse either openly or privately to, to, um, to walk over the bellies of our own lust. But we're going to have those other moments. Like the book uh, Hind's Feet in Hind's Places, the shepherd speaks. He's representing Jesus and he says, This is my special work, he added, with the light of a great joy in his face. This is my special work, transforming things. It's a song, I make beautiful things out of dust. Number one, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Don't let something which you are dead to rule over you. It makes no sense. Do offer every part of yourself. No, no compartmentalizing here to God as an instrument of righteousness. Finally, because sin is not your master, grace Grace is your master. You see how you can't lose in this arrangement as a Christian? Either you're sitting there and you're getting pounded by your sin. No one's exulting in that. but You cannot lose. Grace will abound. And the only person, the only person who would have had trouble with what I just said is a person who's out of touch with their sin and compares their life with somebody else instead of a holy God. And of course, all of this is true only for the Christian then, right? Which begs the question, are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? Do you believe him? Have you entrusted the totality of your personhood to Jesus Christ? Have you said something to him like, you know, I am really sorry. I have broken your law. All my efforts of trying to be good. have proven unsuccessful. Only you can save me, Jesus. I see that now. It's really clear. You died to bring me forgiveness and you died to bring me righteousness and you died to bring me holiness. Save me, have mercy on me. And I promise you, I put my life on it. It's probably one of the only things I would put my life on, that he will save you. He will save you. So this is how it goes. The sermon ended Friday, got it all done, written out. And I asked God, I said, you know, I need a really good quote to, to end this sermon. And I didn't get it until Saturday morning, very early. I'm going to read it to you. If God had perceived that our greatest need was economic, he would have sent us an economist. If he had perceived that our greatest need was an entertainer, he would have sent us a comedian or an artist. If God had perceived that our greatest need was political stability, he would have sent us a politician. If he had perceived that our greatest need was health, he would have sent us a doctor. But God perceived that our greatest need involved our sin, our alienation from Him, our profound rebellion, our death. And therefore, God sent us a Savior, Jesus Christ. I hope you take these things to heart and tie them to yourself in your ongoing battle with sanctification and be careful what you listen to when it comes to sanctification let's pray father thank you for the gospel thank you that the gospel awakens your mercy and not your wrath Evil may oppose us, but your grace will always stand. And we praise your name for this. Amen. God bless you. You are dismissed immediately.